0: So you don't accept the result of the 2016
1: referendum? No, I don't. Suddenly, now, I see things changing. Like a
0: religion, it puts human activity at the centre of creation. It insists that we need to restore the world to some sort of equilibrium. A a young Swedish girl who's, (laughs) who's fated as being, like in a millennial sect, as being the font of some sort of great insight,
1: I'd say this is quite an extraordinary charge to level, as this is the political movement most inspired by science of any political movement there has ever been.
0: Do you think we've got to become less rich in order for others to become rich? Yes. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. I'm here today with George Monbiot. George, thank you very much for coming. Thanks, Douglas. Now, you are a Guardian columnist, you are a prominent environmental campaigner, and you're also a big advocate of, of rewilding. Mm-hmm. But before we get on to talking about any of that, I think we have to talk about the, the big issue of the day Brexit. What, mm. what's, your, what's your view on Brexit? We voted well, to leave? Should we leave?
1: So I call myself a Eurosceptic Remainer. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: in that, I think there's a lot wrong with the European Union and in my field particularly the common agricultural policy, the common fisheries policy, total environmental disasters. Interestingly scarcely discussed in, in the Brexit debates. Uh-huh. The things which are genuinely bad about the EU seem to be forgotten whereas all sorts of myths are created about things which really aren't happening at all in the EU. So if it were purely about agricultural fisheries slash possibly wider environmental issues, I might have been tempted to have voted leave because I really see the downsides there. But weighed against all the other issues, I I think um, I was right to have voted remain. However, that doesn't mean I can't understand the position of those who have voted leave. But my real concern with Brexit is um, that... The referendum itself was, well, it doesn't stand up to democratic scrutiny. The, Why the, not? Well, because of the, the dark money funding, the dark ads on social media, um, the phenomenal lies that were told and different lies wow. told to different people.
0: When Barack Obama ran to be president and he used social media and Facebook as a means of communicating mm. with middle America, mm. everyone said, how frightfully clever. Mm. When Vote mm-hmm. Leave did it, everyone said, ah, oh, yes. well, it's sinister.
1: I, I mean, I mean there is, there's a problem with, with it, whoever uses it. I mean, I mean the, the, the way it has evolved, and it's become much more extreme in recent years, um, is it, really problematic. But in this particular case, we had undisclosed financing of those ads. We still don't know who funded a lot of that work now we have some fairly strong rules about who can and who cannot finance political campaigning in this country um you can't have foreign oligarchs just turning up and buying elections in this country but it begins to look as if that what that's what might have happened with the referendum well, the
0: organizations like goldman sachs and some of uh, the
1: well, I, big, I, I, big banking the, interests well the, the people the, the people campaign. who uh, the people who have been mentioned yeah look, look Look, in all cases, I, I, you know, whatever the result is, and whatever you think the result that you want might be, we have to see democratic justice done. We have to see democracy respected and upheld. Now, in a way, to me, that's more important than the outcome of the vote. You know, I, I, as I say, I understand the Leave position, and I don't actually think that Brexit ne- is necessarily a total disaster for the UK, as as a lot of people believe. But more important to me than the outcome of the referendum was the process of the referendum.
0: You said you want to uphold democracy. Would it uphold democracy to ignore the referendum
1: result? Oh, I've no intention of ignoring it. <laughs> it's impossible to ignore it. How so, could anyone ignore so would it?
0: You, would you but enact it?
1: Well, I, I, I think, I mean, and this isn't a remain position, this is a, a democracy position. I think it should be rerun with a very clear and strong set of democratic rules.
0: What would the question now, be if you rerun?
1: Uh, well, one of the things I'd like to do also would be to refine the question, to have a series of options. If you stay, If you want to stay in Europe... Uh, Under what circumstances do you want to stay? This, this or this. If you want to leave, how do you want to leave? Single market, customs union, no deal, whatever it might be. The trouble is that people voted for something which was almost entirely unknown.
0: But do you really think that a false consciousness was put in the minds of the masses through social media, which meant that they didn't really know what it was they were voting for? And as a consequence, we need to ask the poor again. Do you really believe that?
1: Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not the way I'm putting it at all. I, I, I'm saying that um, the rules were broken. We know the rules were broken. Uh, the Electoral Commission has imposed fines.
0: By the Remain side colluding with well, affiliated groups? The, the,
1: fine, the fines have been on the Leave side because uh, that was the most blatant law-breaking. But you, if, if, as you say, the Remain side broke the law as well, all the more reason to, to rerun this. It's Democracy is too important to um, uh, allow it to, to be subverted Indeed. by the cheating and lying which took place. Now, and, and to be honest, I don't care whether it was Remain or Leave who did the cheating and lying. A, a result which emerged from cheating and lying should not be allowed to stand. So you
0: don't accept the result of the 2016 referendum?
1: No, I don't. Okay. okay. But, so but not, not because my side lost, just because it was completely the wrong way to do it and it damages and undermines democracy. Well,
0: it's 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 important. Um, it's important to know these things. Um, now we met first. I think I'm right in saying in the green room of Newsnight when <laughs> you were you were you were chopping up a roadkill. I think you were <laughs> yeah. you were trying to make a serious point in a mm. quite humorous mm-hmm. way about conservation and about you know the, our relationship with the environment and how we use it. And, And I think you
1: were cooking a squirrel, is that right? Yes, yes. there was a a wonderful, surreal moment where um, they wanted to have a glass of wine with the squirrel I was cooking, so um, 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 someone had to pull the cork out of the bottle before the program started. And the health and safety people came down and said, right, are you sure you know what you're doing here with this cork screw? You're not going to hurt anyone, all the rest of it. And they all yes, yes, we know what we're doing. And then I got this axe out of my back.
0: (laughs) To to, to,
1: to, <laughs> to, the to butcher the squirrel, <laughs> they sort of, have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can imagine, but anyway, I, I know I know what I'm doing here. Now, well, I think thing, I do. One
0: thing you may not realise you did in in that in that in that episode, um, you actually changed my mind about rewilding. Because I remember we had a brief conversation about rewilding. It's not something I had ever really thought about previously, hmm. but I remember talking to you about it and getting away thinking it's oh, quite an interesting idea. And I did a bit of research on it. Tell us a little bit about rewilding and yeah. why why you think it's
1: such a good idea. What is it? So rewilding means the mass restoration of ecosystems. It means basically allowing ecosystems to recover, wildlife to come back in places where it's been massively depleted, um, and and really the recovery of the natural world. And in fact, I believe the case for it has become a lot stronger recently because we've now discovered that it is by far and away the most effective way of drawing down carbon from the atmosphere and reversing some of the climate breakdown that we're causing. So um, what, what it really means in practice is looking at areas where agricultural productivity is extremely low very infertile places, and say... More is, than y- yeah, Yes, yes, uh, pri- in this country, that means the uplands, really. I say, is farming really the most sensible thing we can do here? And this is sharpened by the fact that there would be no farming in the uplands at all if we weren't paying for it. The subsets? Yes, uh, roughly 80% of the income of our, of an upland farmer is, cu- is coming from public money.
0: I, I read on Twitter recently a tweet hmm. that showed a picture of uh, the highlands, I think, of Scotland, or it could have been Yorkshire. <laughs> And it said, you know, we look at this and we think of it as a beautiful scene. Actually, it's a yeah. desert. Um, it's yeah. not naturally like that. Yeah. If you had looked at that a few hundred years ago, you would have seen oak forest, you would have mm. seen woodland. Mm. And basically, we've reduced it. Charcoal cutting and sheep farming has mm. reduced. It, yeah. It's not a beautiful site at all. It's, no. it's a barren wilderness. Mm. So how would you go about restoring
1: but yes. well, it It's actually, it's primarily grazing which has cleared the, the uplands of Britain because, uh, grazing animals um, uh, particularly like tree seedlings. They're highly nutritious. And okay. so they will gr- browse those out in in preference to almost anything else. So and no eventually new trees. No new trees come up, the old trees die. And so the sheep is, is like a fully automated system for ecological destruction. You just let it go, you don't have to do anything else and eventually your forests will be transformed into moorland, rough grassland, with massive depletion of wildlife and of carbon storage and lots of other things. If so,
0: if you got rid of the sheep, got rid of the cattle, what, what would happen if you just mm-hmm.
1: left? It? Well, it, it depends where you are. Um, in some places where you're close enough to the nearest seed banks, there's seeds still in the soil, you would see trees coming back very fast.
0: Nature regenerates.
1: Yeah. In, in other places, it's been so long since there have been trees or indeed any sort of deep vegetation, that you might have to start it off with little islands of tree planting, that sort of thing, um, to actually kick-start ecological processes. But to my mind, rewilding should have as little human intervention as possible, allow nature to find its own way. Surely
0: the key, as a sort of free market libertarian, I would mm. think the key is end the subsidies. Just mm. stop paying mm. for people to mm. produce a sheep that they can't sell for 20 quid and paying them 50 quid for day. If you stop the subsidies Mm. surely that would force the landowners to find other 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 things to do Mm. with the
1: land that would certainly be the quickest and simplest way to do it the the trouble is that entire communities are now dependent on those subsidies and so just stopping them would cause massive social dislocation my belief is that the purpose of subsidies should be changed and they should gradually be scaled down so um and in fact, Michael Gove, to his credit, um, pursued this policy of public money for public goods. Yeah, yeah,
0: he actually said very, when he was environment secretary, some yeah. very positive things. I mm. think you said he was the best environment secretary this country has
1: had for decades. Yes, it, it, it was extraordinary um, because I was not exactly sympathetic towards him when he was environment secretary. <laughs> uh, sorry, education secretary. I'm not very sympathetic towards him in his current role either. But um, but when he was environment secretary, he was actually very good, and he got a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And and he certainly. Um, got the idea that we're currently funding public bads. We're funding environmental destruction. We're funding industries which simply can't sustain employment and and incomes. You know, we, we see the average age of hill farmers getting older and older, young people peeling away, the shops closing, the schools closing, the chapels, the pubs closing, communities basically dying, not being sustained by this industry which we're constantly pumping public money into. So it's time to rethink and let's pay farmers to allow nature to come back, to keep the water on the land so it doesn't just flash off down to the nearest town and cause floods, to keep carbon in the soil um, and, and basically provide those public goods rather than this failing industry.
0: I, I used to be member of the countryside alliance when it got going years ago. I remember joining it and um, you know, having, having great fun going on the marches and stuff. I, I'd be a little bit circumspect about joining the Countryside Alliance now, because I, when I was an MP, I remember toying with the idea about rewilding and, and asking questions about it, mm. and getting this very aggressive mm. response. Mm. W- what is their beef with rewilding?
1: Well, I think specifically it might be Tim Bonner's beef with rewilding, who's the head of the um, Countryside Alliance, who I, I don't quite understand his position. Um, I think it's basically if it's anything to do with a metropolitan elite who are telling us how to live, we're not having it and stuff, even though, you know, most rewilding advocates live in the countryside because they love wildlife. I I, I remember
0: (laughs) expressing some scepticism, a a former member of the Countryside Alliance Mm. in the House of Commons Mm. expressing some scepticism about hunting. Mm. Um, Because I think, you know, the older Mm. I get, the more I I think, actually, you know, if you're going to kill something, maybe it's because you should eat it, and if you're Mm. not going to eat it, you shouldn't be killing it. Mm. I'm not saying I want to change the law, I don't want to ban things, but that's just a mm-hmm. personal view of mine and what mm-hmm. I've come to. And I I remember getting a, a very, very aggressive response yeah. from the environment, um the from the Coastal Alliance. And just thinking, hang mm-hmm. on, this you know, this this isn't this isn't this isn't your organisation is going to be winning many
1: arguments. I think they're trying to fight a culture war. That, that's how I see it. They go on about the urban masses, the urban elites, the urban jackboot, all we this stuff. We are
0: predominantly urban
1: country. Well, we are a predominantly urban country, and the truth is that predominantly urban people are paying the farm subsidies and and paying for for rural life to to continue. Um, and we're also a country of nature lovers. We love wildlife to an extraordinary extent. I mean, you compare us to any other European country. And social attitudes uh, change. Yeah. I mean, you know,
0: mm. it, there are behaviours that would have been considered perfectly mm. normal mm. um, hundred years ago that aren't today. No. I, I suspect, you know, I've, I've done lots and lots of fishing in many different mm. countries in my life. I've caught some huge fish in my time. Mm. Um, but <laughs> I
1: can't help thinking You're now... you sure it wasn't like that? <laughs> you were there, you saw
0: but I can't help, as like, maybe it's me just getting old, but actually there's no hiding it. When you catch a fish, it mm. dies horribly. Mm. There's no mm. getting around mm. it. It does. Mm. Now, I think you can justify that if you're going to eat it. Mm. But, you know, if if I was talking to my 14-year-old self, I'm, I think I'd like to say, why are you catching a fish if you're not going to eat it? Yeah,
1: me? no, no, I, and I, I feel just the same. And, and uh, I mean... I was in the North York Moors National Park recently and like all our national parks it's in a shocking state. I mean really extraordinary and we, we, we were staying down in a valley and I walked out um early one morning. I often take sort of five o'clock walk because that's when you see all the wildlife. And all I saw were pheasants, like lice on the carcass of the land. It was extraordinary. I was walking through this field, and they all started following me because I thought I was going to feed them. And there were literally thousands. I, I, I was like sort of le- leading them through the wilderness. It and was
0: entirely bred to be killed.
1: Entirely bred to be killed, and then. During the day, we went walking on the moors, and there were grouse all over the place. In, in this bread case, well, They're not bred in this case, no, no. But, but the whole ecosystem is manipulated to maximize grouse numbers, so and that means burning it and wiping out a lot the of the other wildlife. are
0: sort of raised artificially and yeah. then released to be killed. That's right. Grouse aren't, but... They're given this environment so their animals grow. So that, that
1: people can That's choose. right and that means killing the predators, killing competitors, burning the heather so that you get lots of young tips which the grass like to eat. Um, and in both cases, ecologically devastating. Uh, you know, more pheasants, a greater weight of pheasants is released every year in this country than the entire weight of all the wild birds in Britain. Quite amazing. No ecological impact assessment, Uh, No one has to ask uh, for a license to do it. You just can release these pheasants. And then, of course, you scatter lead all over the countryside when you're you're shooting them, which has also very considerable environmental implications.
0: Presumably, you can't possibly eat. I mean, if you're a good shot, if you're a bad shot, then it's probably not a problem. But if you're a good shot, you probably can't possibly eat what you you shoot. A dozen pheasants would do you for
1: months. Um, Uh, Well, huge numbers of these birds are dumped in what they call stink pits, which are these just piles of mass graves of dead pheasants just left in the woods um, to to, to, to rot away. For the reason you say, I mean, butchers uh, will take a few pheasants, but they can't take Anything like the numbers, which mean, are being shot. I've
0: eaten lots of pheasant, and no. I don't some particularly nice meat. It's not that great, actually. No. I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a greenie when it comes mm. to these things. Mm. I, I like eating mm. meat. I'm a, I'm a great carnivore. Mm. But pheasant meat is mm. actually mm. pretty, mm. you know, it's, it's bitty, and, yeah, it's, mm. it's, it's not no. worth the effort, it might be, particularly if you've got to pluck it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right.
0: Um, I, I used to, as well as being a member of the Country of the Alliance, even before then, I was a member of Friends of the Earth. Mm. And I... Actually, I wouldn't join Friends of the Earth now, because I, I, and I see myself as on the opposite side of of the argument with them. Because I'm interested in conservation, but I can't help thinking that they're obsessed about the amount of plant food in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Don't you think that the environmental movement has made a bit of a blunder by obsessing, A, about carbon emissions, and B, with this narrative that, you know, everything's going to the dogs and the world's getting worse? Don't you think actually good conservation should be about other things, and it should also be more optimistic? It should say actually, we've got it. The world is getting better. We are cleaning up rivers. Beavers are back in English rivers.
1: Okay. Well, um, good conservation is about telling the truth um, uh, first and foremost. That is the most important thing. You mentioned rivers. Actually, rivers aren't getting cleaner. Um, only fourteen percent of rivers in England are now in good ecological condition. That's the a decline. The that's the yeah, well, that, that, that's that's anecdote. That's not data. You um, you have to actually um, make a scientific empirical study to work out what the overall condition of a river might be. Um, and and if you're looking at rivers in England as a whole. Their, their quality is deteriorating and deteriorating fast. Partly because of agricultural runoff, partly because of over abstraction, partly because of sewage works not being properly regulated. Hang because on, there's
0: far more rule There are far more rules now about what can be put into rivers than there were 30 mm-hmm. years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. The, the oh. rules might be there. I I went. I mean, I'm a very peculiar person because I'm a trout fishing vegan. Um, but I, and the reason I became a vegan is that I went fishing with an old friend in Devon on you the fish river. fish the trout? Yes, I do. Yes, uh, Yes, on the trout. So that's a bit where I'm not vegan. But I went down to the River Cung in, in Devon with this old friend of mine. Uh, from 50 meters away, you could smell the river. And when we got down there, the only living thing in it was sewage fungus. This filamentous bacteria which is actually called sewage fungus and i and so there was nothing to fish for nothing to catch i traced the no, source sure, well it. exactly no i traced the source to this dairy farm which had massively expanded but hasn't hadn't expanded its slurry pits so they were just overflowing even on a dry day and it, so was, it was pouring down see. yeah pouring down into the river poison the whole river so i um contacted the environment agency their pollution hotline and um, they said, all right, thanks very much, sir. Very serious. Yes, we'll come down and have a look. Two weeks later, I rang them up again. And I'm about the most empowered complainant there could be. I wrote this up in the Guardian as well with all the photos and stuff. So I wasn't, you know, I was expecting a result. And... Um, and two weeks later, I rang them up and said, oh, we decided not to enforce, sir. I said, well, why not? Well, it's not a serious incident. What do you mean it's not a serious incident? Well, we found no, no evidence of a fish kill. Of course you found no evidence of a fish kill. There are any fish left to kill. It's been going on for six no, months. No, no. And and but, so I mean, then... This, I... is, this
0: is the problem: If you put a big bureaucracy in charge of anything, mm-hmm. whether it's... Mm-hmm the Electoral Commission in charge of the democratic process or the Environment Agency in charge of doing this, you know, they do what
1: suits them. Well, let me finish this because you'll see what the real problem is. So so then um, um, I wrote that up in the Guardian um, and then I had um, two separate whistleblowers from the Environment Agency got in touch with me and said, you know what the issue is? We've had it from the top, no enforcement against dairy farms. And as dairy farms are the primary source of agricultural pollution, and as agricultural pollution is a primary source of killing rivers in this country, that basically means these crucial rules are just being ignored, and with with devastating consequences. So
0: it's just an arbitrary bureaucratic state?
1: No, this was coming from the government, um, and, and from a government committed to deregulation. Uh, the rules were in place the rules were there the rules could easily have been enforced the staff at the environment agency would love to have enfor- enforced the rules but it was coming from the top they said in in both cases that they were not to enforce those rules it was it was it was Bureaucracy being truncated, it wasn't because of bureaucracy, it was because bureaucracy wasn't being allowed to function. Now, bureaucracy and red tape have become boo words for people like you, who say, oh, we've got to stamp them out and stuff. These are public protections.
0: But hang on, often bureaucracy, I would say, it wields a massive sledgehammer to miss a nut. And this is, you know, I would say that what you've just described is a a good illustration of this.
1: Well, how is that a good illustration of that?
0: Well, Because you've got this organisation that exists to uphold these rules, and it doesn't uphold
1: them. Because and it's been told not to uphold them.
0: Has, it, has the minister actually got on the phone and said, cut the dairy farm and slack?
1: Well, yeah, according to these two whistleblowers, that, that is exactly what I was told.
0: But the minister doesn't control an autonomous agency to that extent. There's no way that a minister <laughs> have, could tell...
1: Have you not seen the 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 control that, uh, that DEFRA has been exercising over all its agencies? I mean, even to the extent that um, when I... Try to virus challenge for, it would be I tried to
0: virus for a minister to tell a local office, the Environment agency, not to intervene in a particular case.
1: Very possibly, but they know which side which side their bread is buttered. I mean, you know the legality of it would be a very interesting case. But that's the reality of it. That's what's been going on. And whether the signal is completely overt, I'm on the phone and I'm instructing you, a particular named person at the Environment Agency not to enforce or it's done by subtler means I don't know but the fact is that these two whistleblowers completely independently told me the same thing and it's the only thing which in my mind could explain the fact that we are seeing these extraordinary incidents of pollution from dairy farms because they're getting a lot bigger dairy farms are and they have these very concentrated sources of slurry and that very easily leaks into the nearest water so, course, which are not being enforced.
0: So the, the whistleblowers worked within the Environment Agency? Yes. And they explained the inertia of the Environment Agency as not being the fault of the Environment Agency? That's correct. No,
1: no. So, on to your other um, issue, which, which is to do with carbon emissions. Um, uh, I, I mean, you can carry on saying you know, this isn't a problem, friends of the earth are making it all up, it's plant food, uh, you know, all the other denier talking points or delayer talking points or do little talking points. I, there is a vast weight of science on this issue now, Douglas. I mean, really a massive weight of science. And it is, it's just such an intellectual dead end even to start trying to, to dismiss it and, and to argue against it because it's pointless. I don't understand why you bother. I mean, you could say, okay, we've got this real issue here and this is my preferred way of dealing with it as opposed to your preferred way and mine's going to be the business way and yours is going to be the more interventionist way, whatever that might be. But to start saying it's not really important, that's just stupid.
0: Let's take a step back, um, talking of avoiding being stupid. On planet Earth, you you have a, a spectrum, historically over hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, between what you might call warm-wet conditions Mm -hmm. and cold-dry conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you agree with me that that's roughly the spectrum? Colder and drier, warmer and wetter?
1: It's it's not quite as clear-cut as that, but in broad terms you could say something like that. Mm
0: -hmm. Would you agree that it is better for life as a whole on Earth, by which I mean genes capable of self-replication, life in the broader sense, if you have warm, wet, rather than
1: cold, dry? Oh, it depends on the degree. Um, so for instance, at the uh, 251 million years ago, Permian-Triassic uh, border, um, you had these vast volcanic eruptions, which produced a lot of carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide. Uh, and sulfur dioxide. So it's sort of acid rain and a massive carbon pulse. And it wiped, wiped out well over 90% of life on Earth, while the world got a lot warmer. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it, it was just too much heating took place, Um, so much heating that the oceanic currents stopped and there was no more mixing so the oceans became completely depleted of oxygen and all you got left was a tiny remnant dwarf fauna, all the big animals died. So it's a question of degree and we have been extraordinarily lucky, in fact you know civilization could not have flourished were it not for this lovely window of climate that we've had in the holocene which Can has been temperate
0: warmer,
1: yeah it, yes. it's, it's been it's been um temperate it's been moderate um it and uh, very few parts of the world perhaps only the afar depression um, have temperature, do temperatures exceed the wet bulb maximum that the human body can take, 35 degrees wet bulb temperature, beyond that you die. But there's hardly anywhere on Earth where that's been the case. It's been this incredible bounty as a result, an amazing piece of luck, which has allowed us to proliferate and to prosper and to build our civilization in this warm, wet period. But you take that warmth too far, and suddenly your luck Ends. And already we're seeing this happening, I mean, to an extreme degree, where there are now places in, in West Asia, uh, we're, we're talking um, places like Iraq, Kuwait, where we're very close now to that 35 degree wet bulb limit. That wasn't the case just a few years ago. We're now seeing more and more extreme weather events. We're seeing the drying out of. Oh, of course, we are absolutely. That's very, well, very well, we'll, we'll, well, well documented. Well, it's very well documented. We see.
0: Is that because we we all have mobile phones, so when there's a hurricane in Florida, we see <laughs> the images, or are there actually more hurricanes? The,
1: there's in a long, well documented empirical time series produced by scientists at many different institutions. Oh, we don't have to go over this, Douglas. For God's sake, it, you know, you had to be willfully blind not to see that that this stuff is happening and it's been properly scientifically documented. But we're also seeing um, large areas of the world where people live becoming prone to flooding, others become prone to drying out. Uh, We're seeing these issues. Um, We um, see areas which are dependent on a mixture of rainfall and irrigation water being hit both ways because the rainfall declines while you over abstract the water from the aquifer and you don't have any water left to irrigate. Um, We see um, um, places uh, beginning to draw so much water out of the ground that they're drawing seawater into the aquifer and and, and it becomes saline just at the same time as the sea is rising, reinforcing that impact. So the combination of climate breakdown and other forms of ecological breakdown is proving lethal. It's already the primary cause of people leaving their homes and becoming refugees.
0: So you think that when we see these protests in London, the Extinction Rebellion protests, do you, you think this is this is absolutely right, this is urgent and, and absolutely essential and it requires a, a massive change in the way that we organise our society?
1: I, I feel I've been waiting for them all my adult life. Um, I mean, this life has... <laughs> Consisted of basically banging my head against a series of brick walls, against the media, which is extremely hostile to environmental discussion, the environmental agenda. And I don't just mean the billionaire press; I also mean the BBC, which, um, for many years, literally commissioning editors, uh, control channel controllers, telling me and the people I work with to, uh, with, to f off. I mean, literally, that, that those were the words they used. Um, um, from this position of extraordinary power now I think that's changing now but it's been unbelievably the frustrating now
0: the BBC to off.
1: well 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 <laughs> yes or yes so at least get its house in order and I think that it, it, in fairness it is but it's been incredibly frustrating um I've seen politics just not really being very interested in the issues or certainly not giving it the prominence um, that it requires um and and I've seen So very weak movements. I mean, even the big NGOs have not been very good at mobilising people, have not been very effective. And suddenly, now, I see things changing with Extinction Rebellion, with the youth strikes for climate. I'm beginning to see mobilisation of the scale and the efficacy that we require.
0: To what extent would you, let me put that a different way, how would you respond to those of us who would argue that actually what we're seeing is in effect in a a post-religious society. This concern about climate change and this insistence upon governments acting, it's a sort of post-religious religion. It's like like a religion. It puts human activity at the centre of creation. It insists that we need to restore the world to some sort of equilibrium. It insists that if you live your life in a certain way, it's wrong and sinful and that you need to... You, know, you, you need to redeem yourself by, by you know, in some cases, even buying carbon credits as a form of penance. Do you, what would you say to those who are a little bit sceptical and who see this as a, as a, as a post-religious religion, a, a search for meaning in people's lives that they don't have on Netflix?
1: I'd say this is quite an extraordinary charge to level, as this is the political movement most inspired by science of any political movement there has ever been. I mean, it is, I, I can't think of any movement ever in human history which has been led by science to the extent that the, that, that the, the m- climate protests millenari- will
0: be. Millenarianist movements also have young girls who emerge as sages, who are regarded as the font of great wisdom, and we've seen that with the environmental movement. A, a young Swedish girl who's, <laughs> who's fated as being like in a millennial sect as being the font of some sort of great insight, is, I mean, isn't there a parallel
1: here? Yeah, this, this is the equivalent to saying that because diamonds are to be found at Kimberley in South Africa and Kimberley in Australia, we should start digging for them at Kimberley in Nottinghamshire. Uh, a young girl is involved in the climate protest, well, and a young good. girl's been involved in other things. But, but the I parallels. Think, well, the, why the, wouldn't young people be involved in this? The, I mean, it's, the, it's a but, completely but it, ridiculous analogy. But
0: the parallels between the modern environmental movement and pre Enlightenment religion are more than just nominative determinism. There are a whole series of similarities between the two belief systems, are there not? Are there? I would argue
1: there are. There are <laughs> well, I would argue you're wrong. <laughs> a,
0: a pre-modern religions often used to say that the world had been pure in some previous past. It was pristine. And you know, the environmental movement, perhaps inspired more by the high priest of, of, of Rousseau than, than than any old-time prophet, insists that there was a pristine. That,
1: that anti-clerical more. philosopher called Rousseau? But
0: it, it, he may be anti-clerical in the sense that he repudiates... So you can't be a
1: Rousseauist and, and, a, and a religious... The
0: point I'm making is that Rousseau's view is that the human condition has declined and we have left some sort of pristine past. It's shockingly um, like the story of the Garden of Eden. It mm. may be ironic right. that an anti-cleric okay. preaches a philosophy that is very like a pre-modern uh, theology, but Rousseau's idea about man... Being descended from a, a, an Eden and a past that was pristine is is very influential in the modern environmental movement. Okay,
1: so name name an environmentalist who, in recent times, has said we need to return to the pristine past.
0: Every time I hear environmentalists talking about zero carbon emissions, because that's what we had before the industrial revolution. Every time I hear programmes on Sky News that say because. The UK or England, in particular, was the home of the Industrial Revolution. We have a, a, a carbon legacy debt to pay. It's all about this idea of going mm. back to a pre-industrial.
1: Well, this is your re- um, you see, this is what you're reading into it, and yeah. this is you imposing your frame on what you're seeing and well, I'm hearing. Certainly what I'm into. Um, it's certainly not what people are actually saying. I mean, what's another very interesting aspect of the environmental movement is its interest in new technology. And, in fact, people like you seem to be trying to lock us into the past, into the old technologies. Tell
0: me about the new technology. How will new technology solve the environmental...
1: I mean, there's very obvious answers, such as um, uh, uh, renewable power, uh, such as fourth-generation nuclear, such as cultured meat. Uh, All these are very powerful new environmental technologies, some of them not so new, actually... Um, that can replace the old fossil fuels and, and the old destructive ways of doing things. And and it seems to me that people like yourself are the ones who are looking back to the past because you're trying to lock us into the old technologies and shut out the new ones. Oh, I'm very
0: much in favour of new technology. I mean, the idea of lab-grown meat might sound unappealing. I love the idea. No, so I mean, do I. If it means yeah. we can have real meat, not artificial yeah. meat, but real yeah. meat... And no slaughterhouse yeah. is fantastic.
1: Absolutely, now I feel exactly the same, but in what possible sense is that wanting to return to some pristine state of new, state of nature?
0: Well, there is, there is a, a, an idea within the environmental movement that there is an equilibrium from which we have diverged and we need to return to. It. There are those, undoubtedly, in the environmental, modern environmental movement, who when they talk about Africa and the, Asia and the, what we used to call the third world, imply that somehow they shouldn't be allowed to develop the way we've developed.
1: Could you name one of those people?
0: Every time I hear Al Gore talking about uh, the need to tackle climate change, he wants to impose on those countries.
1: He does? When? Where? I've never seen him say any such thing. it was a
0: Paris Agreement. It was about imposing on countries measures that would restrict their ability to industrialise?
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. No, not in the least. I mean, the Paris Agreement, you know, is the, the countries which have to make the biggest efforts are countries like ourselves, which are extremely rich, which are most able to do so, but we should also help other countries adopt new technologies to bypass the incredibly dirty and polluting um, period which we went through, which did enormous harm to our own citizens as well as to the living planet and you know why go through the coal phase when you can go straight to the renewables phase but they are i mean they're
0: building a phenomenal i mean coal output in india is increasing exponentially mm-hmm. in china it's increasing mm-hmm. exponentially uh, they may be building a lot of nuclear power plants in china they may be using a lot of solar technology but they're also doing a lot on carbon emissions mm. um and surely um a lot of the modern environmental movement in the west has been about trying to prevent them
1: from emitting carbon, has it not? It's been to try to prevent humanity from emitting so much carbon that it pushes us into human, uh, into climate breakdown, and that's, that should be a global aim, it has to be a global aim, because... When, when do you, you think the
0: tipping point is? When do you think the the, the the point of no return is? When do you think the point is when we, you know, we're
1: doomed? Well, the trouble with tipping points is you don't know you've reached them until it's tipped. I mean,
0: Prince Charles said 12 years Oh, Oh, no, I mean,
1: I I, I don't think any of these um, very particular time frames are that helpful in discussing this. What what I do see is some really scary stuff happening already. So, for instance, in Canada this summer, they found a a depth and extent of permafrost melting, which was not forecast to happen until 2090. We've seen uh, melt rates in Greenland, which weren't forecast till twenty sixty. We're seeing a rapidly accelerating disappearance of permanent Arctic sea ice, um, uh, and all of these things are ahead of trend. Now, you know, we've had people like you going on for years saying, "Oh, these climate scientists are all scaremongers and stuff." So. It turns out that actually their pro- pro- projections and forecasts have been highly conservative, and have been outstripped by events in many parts of the world already. Um, this is a climate emergency, and unless we treat it as such, we do all of ourselves, especially the younger people, a massive disservice. Do you,
0: do you think the world's got better in your lifetime?
1: I think some things have definitely and massively got better. Parenting. I would put that top of the list. It's, it's quite extraordinary. I know so many people... Does that, that mean
0: you're, you're, you're a better parent than your parents were?
1: Uh, I, I, I don't want to personalise this, uh, but I've met so many people who basically had really crap childhoods. You know, were just brought up with a lot of neglect, a, a lot of just a lack of interest from their parents, um, very little love, very little physical contact, very little emotional contact who themselves are brilliant parents and are totally engaged with their children and loving and very physical with them and very supportive of them and very concerned about their welfare in the way that their parents weren't. And interestingly, because I've got friends all over the world, I'm told that that is similar things are happening worldwide in that respect. Um, uh, I've got friends in Africa, friends, friends in South Asia who, who, who say... Uh, that fathers are far more engaged in childcare than they ever were before and, and there's generally a much stronger emphasis on the welfare of children so that delights me and that's one of the things that gives me hope. Other things, not so good and the um, massive acceleration of environmental damage that we see in so many parts of the world, well obviously that grieves me enormously and makes are me extremely some worried.
0: Success stories?
1: Uh, there are some success why stories. Why
0: aren't they celebrated
1: Well, I, I do say. I mean, this is why rewilding. China's,
0: China's taken the giant panda off the endangered list. When mm-hmm. I went to see mountain gorillas in Rwanda and Uganda in the early eighties, there were less than four hundred left. There are now over thousand left. Mm-hmm. We never hear this.
1: No, we, um, what do you mean? We never hear we, this. Global greening. I hear this all now, the time. But there's,
0: but there's global greening. Mm-hmm. We, we're constantly told, you know, um, the world is going to hell in a handcart. The Extinction Rebellion protests block the traffic in the streets of London saying it's all what we're doing. Actually, in pretty much every ecological space around the planet, there is more vegetation now than there was 30, 40 years ago.
1: simply not true. We are talking in the week in which forest fires are raging. But there through are more forest fires in
0: Brazil this year than there were last year.
1: There are actually, there are. There are. On what basis uh, do you say that? Uh, on the NP. Satellite system uh, measurements but taken we'll by the Brazilian up on satellite the agency.
0: When I edit this, um, your source and my mm. source. Okay. So the viewer can, can, okay. can make fine. their mind yep. up. But okay. it, it's my understanding from mm. having looked at the stats before the show that there are no worse forest fires. The big okay. change is
1: right. we'll compare sources. Western
0: liberals don't like the political complexion of the president. Mm. We'll
1: compare sources. Okay. That's the only thing that counts.
0: Okay.
1: Um, we have just seen. Um, Horrendous levels of fires in the Arctic, in Siberia, in Alaska. Um, The um, very rapid sea ice taking place in in, in the Arctic, Uh, sea ice melt. Um, I mean, look, there's a lot of really bad stuff going on around the world now. Um, There has been some um, global greening, but what's broadly happened is rewilding in the rich nations and the destruction of old growth forests in the poor nations. So Um, so, getting rich is the best thing? No, 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 not at all. Because what's happened is is that in, in the rich nations, because we've been intense agricultural nations for a very long time, we were farming highly unsuitable places, extremely infertile land. And as soon as those places became subject to global competition... Then it was no longer economically viable to farm that land.
0: So you abandon the marginal land in Spain that, and Italy, before was, it comes back. That's
1: correct, and throughout all the uplands of Europe, except in the UK, actually, this is this has been this has been happening, um, and the same in much of the United States. Um, but in, in in other parts of the world, um, the farming hasn't been nearly as extensive. You know, it hasn't occupied all spheres. It's it's principally occupied the most fertile land so there isn't that scope for um for, for for retreat from agriculture that there has been in in these temperate nations um, however what is happening with devastating consequences and at great speed is the destruction of these old growth forests which are um uh, the most biodiverse places on earth number one number two um the biggest carbon stores terrestrial carbon stores on earth and number three, the homes of many indigenous people and, and others who depend a, 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 on a them for of their subsistence.
0: Destruction firsthand in, in Uganda, a country I, I, I know very well. Um, there's been a huge deforestation there, mm. and it it is it is depressing and alarming mm. when you go and see a landscape that you remember as being entirely forested, and there'll be two or three large mahogany trees left, mm. and everything else is gone, and mm. even those few surviving trees, uh, their, their their days are numbered. But I can't help but Notice that in a, in a country like Spain or, or Italy, 50, 60 years ago, there would have been an army of, of, of charcoal cutters. People mm. in those countries at that time were poor and they needed fuel to cook and to, to warm their houses. Mm. They don't need that now. So you no charcoal cutters, the, 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 the forest and the trees have come back. Mm. Surely what we need to do is make sure that a country like Uganda has a per capita GDP so they're rich enough to not need... Uh, charcoal cutting, to not need to cut down wood for fuel. That's the key thing that we need to achieve. And well, that can only come about by allowing them to have a sort of capitalist, free market-induced take
1: Well, the immediate task is to replace the sources of fuel, um, and in fact that's a very important task for human health as as, as, as well as for environmental health. Um, and there's lots of very innovative and exciting ways of doing that. Um, I know people who have been running biogas plants in various parts of Africa where they take household waste, sewage waste, and the rest of it, produce biogas, and people can start cooking on the biogas rather than with charcoal or with kerosene, both of which are I mean, very polluting farmer in Kenya, a and years very damaging. He used to do this with mm, methane mm. from his cattle. <laughs> mm, right, right. Um, and and so, you know, you, you, you can say, well... Uh, your aim could be to make the entire world richer in order to deal with these things. Um, and I'd say that's a very indirect way of trying to re- reach the roots of the problem. If, if you've got a particular problem here, there is a particular solution to that problem. Let's deploy the solution. Now, the problem with the approach that we've got to make everyone rich so that we no longer engage with this hey, you know, the planet just doesn't have... That level of resources, for a start, you know. So uh, if we're going to make people in Africa richer, which I believe people in Africa should be richer, I mean, in the poorest people, then we have to become less rich. There has to be a rebalancing that takes place. Do
0: you think we've got to become less rich in order for others to become rich? Yes, so you because because zero
1: some well, yes, because because we don't have the planetary resources. But, on, but it's the, also the, the case since is, the
0: nineteen sixties, the population of the planet has doubled. Mm-hmm. It's doubled at a time when per capita incomes have mm-hmm. increased astronomically. Mm-hmm. There are twice the number of people mm-hmm. today as there were in the 1960s, and they are many, many, many times richer. You mm-hmm. don't need to be, technology mm-hmm. and innovation allows you to get more for less. You, mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. need to mm-hmm. see this as a zero-sum game. It's,
1: we've been living on planetary capital, and we've been depleting that stock of capital massively. And as a result, we are now breaching the planetary boundaries. You know, this is again, you know, well, uh, the planetary, what science of planetary boundaries. Well. It's, it's not so much what we run out of, it's, it's what we damage enormously. But you said are
0: limited, so what are we going to run out of first?
1: Um, atmospheric space, um, a habitable climate, fresh water, clean fresh water, many parts of the world that's already in, in, in serious trouble, soil, soil, are we soil, are soil? Uh, well, even in the UK, um, as Michael Gove said, surely, we have we a we few, few decades...
0: Re- We're abandoning the marginal land because we no longer need it, on the contrary, far from running out of agricultural land, we're now in a situation. Yeah. Well. I'm talking
1: about soil. I'm talking about soil. And in arable land where we grow many of our crops, the soil is absolutely crucial. Human civilization depends on it. Yeah, we, well, can, we
0: can get higher yields from less space. So yeah. And in the pursuit of, of the
1: and in pursuit of those higher yields, some of the techniques we use are stripping the soil from the land. And and don't start denying soil erosion as well, Douglas, you know, climate breakdown is bad enough. But if you start starting to say, oh, that's not a thing either. Well, then you go from uh, occupying a stupid position to occupying a a preposterous position. Soil erosion around the world is very well documented. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization says that at current rates of soil degradation and loss, we have 60 years of harvest left.
0: That may well be soil degradation and erosion in parts of the world but in other parts of the world such as the rich Western capitalist countries we're getting higher yields from the same acreage in Holland higher yields than ever from the same acreage or hectare you might call it in in East Anglia Mm -hmm. it's perfectly possible to get far more food out of the same amount of soil we're not running Mm -hmm. out of farm
1: space but but not if you deplete the soil the soil is this crucial commodity
0: adopted free-market capitalism,
1: perhaps, but those that have. No, listen, soil erosion rates in this country are horrendous, uh, and Michael Gove went on and on about this. You know, he, he, he said, we've got 30 or 40 years in this country at current soil erosion rates. This again is very well documented, you know, particularly with the switch to crops such as maize, which are catastrophic for soil because um, the, the, uh, you harvest them very late in the year, so you can't then plant cover crops, and you leave the soil bare um, through the winter. They're very widely spaced, so in the spring you also get very high soil erosion. And it's you know the the uh, 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 there was figures from the southwest of, of 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 England a couple of years ago showing that in the 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 majority of ag- of arable land now we are seeing highly unsustainable rates of soil so erosion. So
0: we're going to run out of soil? We're going to run out of... Oh,
1: well, Earth. we run down. We run, run the soil down until we actually seriously compromise our ability to keep feeding the 7 billion or 9 billion or 11 billion people there might be on Earth. Uh, that is one of the many factors which is extremely dangerous to, I I, to human yeah. civilization.
0: Uh, when I was growing up in the 70s, I remember being told there was a new ice age on the way. And then in the 1980s, I remember... Who told being you that? It was a popular thing. It
1: was a popular thing. It wasn't a scientific thing. It was a popular, thing. Was things, a popular
0: told, thing. We're, we're doomed. I age on the way. Mm. I also remember in the 80s being told, acid rain, we're, we're doomed. Uh, and and uh, epidemic diseases, new diseases, it, mm. we're doomed. And then, you know, now it's, it's you know, an asteroid's going to get us mm. or climate change. But I thought I am noticing, actually, the world's been getting better. Might it be that actually some of this... Is, is 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 misplaced
1: pessimism. <laughs> uh, this whole thing of I was told this sometime in the past, so I can't believe anything I'm told today is one of the stupidest lines of reasoning I've ever come across. It's like so well I was told in the past, at, at, at nursery school, that um, uh, humankind were created when God made Adam, and then he made Eve out of Adam's rib. So now that I hear it's done through natural selection, and that, that's where human, humanity came from, I can't believe that either, because I was told something which yeah, was wrong in not the not past. It's ridiculous. Well, it's a, parody, it's a parody it's a sort of entirely, what you sort of are saying.
0: Parallel. If we're gonna talk about dramatic cliff-age circumstances, hmm. and cataclysmic events, it's, I think, helpful to reflect on the fact that we've been warned about supposed cataclysmic events in the past. But it's by whom?
1: Past. By whom? You say people were warning you about an ice age in papers. the 1970s. There were, there were
0: papers in the 70s produced saying that the world is getting oh, cold Yeah, cold yeah, cold yeah cold
1: by, by cold. a couple of cranks. I mean, this was not a mainstream view at all.
0: Well, maybe the mainstream changes, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, but that wasn't the mainstream.
0: But maybe what we call the mainstream, shifts and changes.
1: Well, if you're talking about the science of climate change, we're talking about a science which goes back to Svanti Arrhenius in the 19th century. In fact, it goes back further than that to John Tyndall. You know, this is a very long established science. The greenhouse effect was established by Tyndall, that if you create more carbon dioxide...
0: Knowledge is is cumulative, isn't it? That's... Absolutely, yes. Mm. uh, And so if you accept that knowledge is cumulative... I think you also accept that what people perceived to be mainstream thinking about the climate in the 70s and what people think about mainstream today may have changed. May well, have.
1: what people perceive and, and what think, you was... you think
0: been this true idea about global global warming well, and that those who, those who said the world was getting colder in the 70s... What, what, what always cranks and regards?
1: Well, of they were never the mainstream. They were never the scientific consensus. They were never represented by the majority of scientists in the field. Um, and, and But as time has gone on, we've learnt more and more. That's what science does, and old ideas are refined and sometimes and a challenged. And consensus in
0: one age is regarded as being cranky in the next age. Oh,
1: well, absolutely, because it has to be backed by empirical research. But what we have now and what we have been developing over many decades is a vast body of empirical research. Do you think
0: it's empirical or do you think it's perhaps inductive? It's sometimes?
1: Well, well, I mean, what do you call satellite measurements? What do you call ice core measurements? What do you call tree ring measurements? I mean, facts, but what you're that's can empirical. Be, some of
0: it can be empirical, it can also be treated as... Oh.
1: Well, what you do with the facts is you analyze them, you, you you gather the data, you analyze the data and you draw conclusions you from that, that an analysis.
0: Way or an
1: you way? do that in a peer-reviewed way. You do that in a way which accords with the highest principles of how science is supposed to work no, and that is the like empirical way. The idea way.
0: was that people claim an authority to knowledge, you just said you put it to peer review. That implies that there are those within the scientific community who claim an authority to knowledge. Surely, surely mm. isn't there a glimpse of mm. a sort of pre-enlightenment idea? That uh, you, the
1: think that, you think that peer review is argument from authority? You think it's the authority fallacy? Peer
0: review can, without being very careful, move into a pre-enlightenment mm. way mm. of thinking where some people claim an authority to mm. knowledge.
1: Mm. It can, without being very careful, exactly as you say, which is why most... Uh, eminent peer reviewed journals are very careful. And um, it, obviously, there are dangers. So, you know, we're human beings, we're all flawed. It's all, you know, there's nothing that is ever going to be perfect out of the crooked timber and all that. But um, if you can think of a better method, Of determining whether something stacks up, whether it makes sense, whether the data have been properly and well, that's what it's all about, Douglas. Peer review is
0: not.
1: Of course it's all about that. That's entirely what peer review is about. That's entirely what science is about. And if you're trying to and and, and what, what a peer reviewer does, you know, what a peer reviewer does is doesn't sort of swoop in and say, Does this accord with my beliefs? They they look at the data. They say, right, have these data been fairly and accurately collected? Then they look at the analysis, the statistical analysis. Does this statistical analysis work? Is it the appropriate statistical analysis? Have they done it right? Has it been run right? Uh, Does that stack up? They then look at the conclusions drawn from the statistical analysis and say, do these conclusions follow from that analysis?
0: Doesn't peer review also sometimes lead to a groupthink where, yes, they claim to do all those things, but new ideas that perhaps are regarded by some within the academic community as an affront to what they personalise as their beliefs. Mm. It allows the personalization. and actually if you're going to be properly empirical, if you're going to be true to empiricism, true to what the Enlightenment's about, you should you should be doubtful about elevating mm. a small priesthood mm. of intellectuals mm. to sit in judgment of the truth.
1: Well, There's always a danger. Um, there is in, in any group of human beings, you know, there's always a danger of egos getting in the way, of preconceived academia. opinion. No, actually not particularly in academia, academia is highly competitive. Everyone, you know, the highest thing you can aim for is exactly. to knock down don't the these, ideas.
0: Yeah, don't a lot of these guys have tenure in their? Jobs? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But it, oh, it's so a, it's about attention. It's about it's about um, um, being the person who came up with the new theory which overturned everything else. But if you have, ten- if, if you have tenure over.
0: in your department and you can't, in effect, be fired, and don't you create a sort of far from being competitive? Don't you create a sort an of intellectual cocktail? The,
1: the the two things are completely different. Um, what what what? You know, what is valued more than anything in academia is new ideas, uh, new ideas which overturn. Of course, who you name any famous scientist, there's someone who produced a new idea. Who in science doesn't want to be one of those people?
0: I can think of many, many people who produce revolutionary ideas. I sometimes wonder if they would always get published and taken seriously today.
1: Well, uh, if you, know, you would hope so, and, and I would say there's a better chance of it. I mean, you know, I'm not here to say that everything is perfect. Of course it's not all perfect, but can you think of a better system? Can you imagine a better system than peer review? Because, okay. Um, yeah, okay, tell me, what is it? Okay.
0: I, I think if you had a system where you didn't only publish things because a certain group of establishment experts Said that it qualified and was worthy of publication. You had genuine competition between different publications. At the moment you have a hierarchy of publications so that in order to get taken seriously you have to be published mm -hmm. in a certain publication. So if you had a
1: sort of public library of science type thing, a sort of open source type of publication thing?
0: I would have competition between different mm, universities yeah. running entirely
1: separate journals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and on a sort of open basis without going through the big publishers, that sort of thing. I, yeah.
0: I, you said the big publishers. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, some new ideas that deserve a hearing mm. are always allowed a hearing. You...
1: Yeah, no, no, but I say, I, I'm, I'm just interested in your system. So you want something which is more disaggregated, more competitive, less controlled by a small number of journals and stuff. You've got it. It's called the Public Library of Science. This uh, and the, in fact, there's a, been a great proliferation of new publishing models all the time, where people are constantly trying to develop and improve the way that we do science and the way that we review science, um, because you know. That, that's, how things, that's how things work. That's how things get better. You, you just constantly try to refine and refine and refine the model. But everything you're calling for is already being done.
0: Do you think the university model could be changed?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, I've come to realize that a lot of universities are basically real estate companies with a bit of learning attached. <laughs>
0: huge, huge debts, yeah. which allow mediocre people, sometimes not on the academic side, but the administrative side, to be overpaid. With a guaranteed income from future generations of graduates. Did you say huge debts? Yeah, huge
1: debts. Don't you mean huge, huge legacy? Oh, it's student debts, you mean?
0: Yeah. Oh, it's student debts. I mean, debts, a lot yeah. of these universities have grown mm. and grown and grown mm. and grown. Um, and they're funded on, on, you know, massive debt and yeah, eventually yeah. I think some
1: of them will have to go bust. Well, I, I mean, I, I I hate the way in which students are being saddled with enormous amounts of debt, in which then push them into far more limited career choices than they might otherwise have had, um, doubtless load them with anxiety and all sorts of other things that young people really do without at the moment. Um, and there's a lot of things i don't like about the university model that's rather different to the empirical scientific model which you know isn't necessarily the same thing you know it's just uh, you know science goes on at universities but it's not determined by the funding model of the universities it tends to be determined by other factors and it's not perfect but basically your problem is you don't like the results it's producing
0: that's not not, not so true you're saying I, you're attacking I, the I, method I, because I, I, I the I results think are wrong try to make a serious point about the concerns that I think are quite legitimate about what, what science claiming an empirical approach that sometimes turn out to be inductive. and it's, I, I'm, I'm parroting far, 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 far wiser heads than mine. I mean David Deutsch um, and a lot of his books, um, which I've I've, mm. I've read, um, and he talks about this difference between true empiricism and inductivism. And I can't help thinking mm. that a lot of Academic mm. um, science, particularly, especially in the social sciences, but also in areas like climate science, mm. you see inductivism. Masquerading as empiricism, mm. and I think this this does a disservice.
1: Okay, but I think there's some motivated reasoning going on here because you start off by saying, "Oh, you know, this climate business isn't nearly as serious as the scientists are telling us." The um, ecological condition of our rivers are improving. Soil erosion isn't a thing, and and when I say, "Well, the science says it is," you say, "Ah, oh, yes, there's a problem with the no, science."
0: No, I, never said, I never said soil erosion wasn't a thing. I said that soil erosion was far worse in countries that hadn't.
1: Developed and far less important. Yeah, without producing any scientific evidence for that. But when I push back against that and said actually it's a big thing here, you redouble your attack on science. So basically, what I see is someone who's not getting the results that he would like to get, and so you're attacking the methodology which isn't producing your favoured results.
0: Which is what I think. Skeptical environmentalism, to coin a phrase, mm. is, I think, yeah,
1: I, I, skepticism s- in all things. Yeah, a, ske- a skeptic is, is a seeker after truth, and we should all aim to be skeptics, but skepticism and denial can be two completely opposite things.
0: Just to finish off, if I may, I, mean, I, I think that the environmental movement in its current guise with the climate protesters and the Extinction Rebellion, it's making some pretty big asks mm. about the future of the way we organize mm. society. And if it's going to justify being taken seriously, and if it's going to justify reordering society, it needs to be prepared to subject itself to scrutiny. Mm. Too often what happens is when you start to question and challenge this, you get regarded as a bad person, an unrighteous person, mm. an immoral person, a wicked person. Now, that that I think hocks back to this idea of modern environmentalism no, no, no. as a religion. Yeah,
1: I don't think any of those things. I think you're a wrong person. <laughs> Well, you did or the I think you're, yes, yeah, I mean, the things you said were stupid. I don't think you're stupid. I think you've said some stupid things and taken some stupid positions, but I don't in any way think you're stupid. Now, you say that people like me should be subject to scrutiny. I agree. That's why I'm here.
0: Thank you very much for coming, George. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>
1: All right, thank you, Douglas.